I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Now early last year, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra appointed Mark Hansen as its new president and CEO. As you'll hear, Mark is particularly passionate and enthused about this task. And thankfully, he seems full of ideas to help this tremendous orchestra move forwards. So Mark, a belated welcome to Baltimore for you. I have to ask you, first of all, though, what attracted you to this job rather than the obvious? Thank you, Andrew, for this opportunity to chat. Um, I'm a fan of your podcast and uh, it's a privilege to participate. So I have had the Baltimore Symphony in my head and I have to say in my heart for quite some time. I grew up in Boston and I entered the field of orchestra management immediately upon graduating from college and have therefore you know, studied um, the sort of orchestra scene for a couple decades now. And I've always been impressed by several things that have happened and continue to happen here at the Baltimore Symphony. And I'll list those in a moment, but the combination of those aspects, those attributes, um, those characteristics have always led me to believe that um, at some point in my career, I would love the opportunity to be a part of what the Baltimore Symphony is trying to accomplish. And um, I'm thrilled that the stars sort of lined up and um, I had this opportunity um, along with our family who has roots um, along the Eastern seaboard and actually here in in Maryland um, to, to make the move. So thrilled to be um, one of the newest members of the Baltimore Symphony family um, at a, a particularly exciting time for the organization as we prepare to welcome um, a fabulous, dynamic, young um, new music director in Jonathan Hayward, who, along with the rest of us, is trying to um, trying to incorporate the mindset of being a 108-year-old startup. We all have enormous respect for what the Baltimore Symphony, previous music directors, previous staff and musician leadership have all accomplished. Um, The fact that we're the only orchestra that performs in two markets every week, Baltimore with the Meyerhoff, DC slash Montgomery County with Strathmore um, is an amazing accomplishment. Um, The founding under Marin Alsop of the Orchids program 15 years ago. Amazing accomplishment. Our dual mandate to serve the city of Baltimore, but also the entire state, which we're doing each summer by taking the full orchestra to every county throughout the, the state, and there are 24 of them, plus a whole lot more. Um, you know, it is, 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 a, is a, a wonderful opportunity to not only cement everything that has happened up until this point, 
but to apply new ways of thinking about what we're currently doing and what we would like to do in the future that will hopefully lead to an even stronger relationship between our organization and all of the communities that we serve. Audiences that we currently have, audiences that we're, we're finding um, in, in the future. And it's why we refer to wanting a mindset of being a 108-year-old startup, because there's this, this wonderful balancing act of trying to treasure and sustain and preserve what we've done so well, what we still are doing well, while mixing in to all of that, the new ideas, the broadened ideas that will help us be a more inclusive, a more welcoming, a more interesting organization to the people in Baltimore, around Baltimore, in Montgomery County, in DC, throughout the state that we want to have a relationship with. So Mark, that's very exciting. It's very daring. It's maybe a bit risky as well. And it, it sounds to me as though you're not somebody who is averse to taking risk in this business. And it's almost essential, but we must acknowledge as you as you are doing, and maybe I can outline it a little bit for some of the listeners, that the Baltimore Symphony over the last 40 years, let's say, has a wonderful and varied musical heritage of, of leadership with uh, Sergio Comisiona, David Zinman, amazing work that David did, great Yuri Temekanov, my, my friend and mentor, and then the last 15 or so years with Marin and her exciting programs and developments. Um, and then a new music director coming in. As you say, you can push it forwards as appearing like a startup, and I, I find that really quite inspiring and a very novel concept. You have to bring a lot of people with you who are wedded in tradition. Do you see that as being a particular challenge as well? You don't want to lose those people because there's a lot of substantial support there. Andrew, you're absolutely right. And I go back to um, how we're talking about this mindset. It's not that we feel the need to think and behave like a startup <laughs> that, that doesn't appreciate and, and um, respect and, and treasure um, what has happened up until this point. It's, it's, that it's that combination of deepening our commitment to traditions, practices, programs that still clearly resonate with in many of us and many of our audience members, many of our donors, at the same time, stretching our thinking and uh, sort of our behaviors um, and our, our mindset to make sure that we are layering on top of and around what we do so well, the ideas, the programs, the concepts, the initiatives that will move the needle in a, a, a material way as we go forward and find new audiences that will not only allow us to be a more vibrant organization, but a more sustainable organization. It's a, it's a beautiful virtuous circle. The harder we work 
to find new audiences, the more resources we will have to invest in what we already treasure. And it really is about applying, in my opinion, a big tent mentality to everything that we do, because you're right, we can't afford, nor do we want to lose anybody. Longtime subscribers, donors, members of the orchestra and staff who have been valuable members of the team for 20, 30, or 40 years in some cases. But a bigger risk would be assuming that the status quo or what has you know worked in the past is enough as we venture forward. So this is not risky behavior in our opinion applying the mindset of a 108 year old startup well maybe it i should is, have said daring daring it, it, mark it is <laughs> essential behavior and to boot really really interesting um, um, really interesting work that that requires us as individuals to not only be more creative in how we think about this balancing act, how we think about finding new audiences. But it is an opportunity that requires that many more BSO family members, musicians, staff, board members, audience members, donors, partners, to participate in this brainstorming, in this creative process. And don't we live in a society now that requires a more inclusive um, decision-making process. Um, I've always believed in servant leadership. Um, I certainly don't have all of the ideas and rely on and, and um, so appreciate the ideas and contributions of others. Well, we live in a society that I think almost everybody agrees is better when those who haven't had a very strong voice or any voice at all are at the table and are helping to strengthen the performance of these decades old um, uh, organizations and art forms that you know have, have had a narrower focus in, in the past. Maybe it's worked, but we need to broaden our horizons. We need to broaden participation levels. And I just think that it's leading to more interesting stuff happening on any stage upon which the Baltimore Symphony performs. Laudable as, as that is, Mark, and it, and it really is. And it's very exciting. I should have said daring rather than anything else there to describe it. Uh, but what would you say your, your single biggest challenge is in Baltimore? Baltimore is a very particular city uh, with a lot of inner city challenges. Uh, and the Mayhoff is a wonderful hall, very much downtown. How do you equate that with the, the glorious, relatively new space at Strathmore and the community around there? Is that a, is that a challenge in itself? Meyerhoff and Strathmore are equally challenging, uh, but for different reasons. And I think the biggest opportunity that we have as an organization is to make both venues more welcoming, um, more attractive 
to that many more Marylanders, Washingtonians when it comes to Strathmore and Baltimoreans when it comes to the Meyerhoff. There are relatively few symphony orchestras that own and operate their own concert hall. In partnership with the Baltimore Symphony Endowment Trust, which technically owns the Meyerhoff, we're one of those few orchestras. And so what that is enabling us to do is to pursue what we call a hall for all initiative. We are um, imagining new expanded ways of welcoming different arts groups, different organizations, different musical genres, different activities into the various spaces that make up the Meyerhoff. And when we are successful in further activating all spaces within the Meyerhoff, we will move closer to having repositioned it from being not only a wonderful symphony hall, but into a facility, a venue, a cultural treasure that can be appreciated by, used by that many more members of our community. Part of this has to do with learning to do multiple things at once. I'll give you an example. Last October, we held our first ever jazz performance in the lobby of the Meyerhoff on a Thursday evening while the full orchestra was performing a subscription classical program over at Strathmore. It's rare in the past that we have tried to do two activities at once. But it's possible, given that we're the only symphony orchestra that performs each and every week in two different markets, in two beautiful halls. And as different as the halls are, they're equally special um, in terms of the musician and the audience experience. And unless we are trying to think about how better to you know, take full advantage of, of this gift that the organization has in the Meyerhoff, this gift that we have in uh, a resident you know, orchestra um, relationship with Strathmore, we're not going to be living up to our fullest potential. Mark, you're incredibly passionate about this, and I want to get to the bottom of where that passion comes from. Uh, I'm intrigued to know from managers in this business in general why they do it, what motivates them, what, what are their own loves. I mean, do you think, for example, that it's important for somebody in your position to be passionate about the product, about the industry, about the history, about the, the art form? For sure. Um, I can't imagine being successful um, without a, a deep love for classical music, specifically symphonic music. I grew up a cellist outside of Boston, participated in school string orchestras, school symphony orchestras from you know middle school on, but 
at the same time, my parents provided me with some wonderful opportunities to have private um, teachers from, you know, elementary school or even preschool, you know, throughout my conservatory years and youth orchestra experiences, you know, beyond the public schools that I attended as a kid. Longy School of Music, Greater Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra, New England Conservatory Prep um, uh, in Ben Zander's um, uh, Youth Philharmonic Orchestra. And that then continued on to, you know, two years at the Eastman School of Music as a cello performance major. First and foremost, I loved I fell in love with symphonic music as a participant, <laughs> as a cellist. Um, and fortunately, three years after leaving conservatory, found my way back into the orchestra field by way of the League of American Orchestras Management Fellowship Program. And I quickly realized, even though I had um, helped to, to run a student-run homeless shelter you know, during um, college, I, I quickly came to realize that I could marry my newer interest in nonprofit management with my lifelong passion for music by entering the field of orchestra management or arts administration. It is entirely possible for folks who are newer to the art form to be really, really impactful administrators. But for me, it's always been important to um, uh, remember what classical music provided me throughout my childhood and into adulthood as I am doing, you know, the hard work of um, helping to lead um, an American orchestra because I want these same opportunities for millions of young people, older people, who haven't yet entered into a relationship with classical music or with you know, the symphony orchestra or the youth orchestras in their communities. That's what drives me. I don't want any of us to rest until we are filling every seat, until we have exhausted all of the ways to bring a symphony orchestra in its largest form or in chamber ensemble form to all corners of the community, or in our case, all corners of, of the state. And I love the fact that it's a never ending quest. And until I retire, I'm going to roll up my sleeves with musician colleagues, staff colleagues, board colleagues, and continually try to you know, make sure that we are um, attracting new audiences while holding on to current audiences, because I want these institutions, I want this art form, I want the profession of being an orchestral musician to survive until the end of time. You shouldn't underestimate that that drive and passion for it either. It's not just management skills that, that are important in your position. And from a conductor's perspective, a music director's perspective, the partnership with an impassioned, if that's a word, uh, partner in management that way is is absolutely essential and inspiring. The, I can't imagine anything worse than having to to uh, plan and negotiate and liaise 
with a, a partner who just wasn't driven the same way I think you are and I know that, that I am. I've always loved relationships with the executive directors I've worked with because they loved the art form and they knew how important it could be to so many people's lives. So I'm really pleased to hear that from you as as um, what I am currently, which is um, um, a supporter of the Baltimore Symphony and a, and a local attendee, as it were. I want to move on, though, and ask you, what are your what are your greatest concerns for the future of the orchestral business? What do you think could get in the way of of your your plans? I think the biggest obstacle that we as individuals and as institutions may face in the future is a reluctance to change fast enough and to expand what we think is required of a symphony orchestra or of an orchestra administrator or an orchestra board member or an orchestral musician. I think we need to uh, constantly remind ourselves that, as we were talking about earlier, the riskiest behavior that we could pursue is, you know, a belief that the status quo is sufficient. Um, so um, demonstrating to ourselves and to our communities that what is most important to us is attracting as many audience members, as many participants, you know, to our education activities is the ultimate goal. We sometimes have conversations here at the Baltimore Symphony about the traditional mission statement that you see at symphony orchestras that speak to the importance of achieving artistic excellence and preserving this art form. I totally believe in the centrality of those goals, but why we do all of that so that we can bring as many people together for this communal experience that is unlike you know, so many things in this world of experiencing a live symphonic concert together surrounded by people that we wouldn't necessarily otherwise associate with. And so I think that our mission, our principal reason for existence is not to perform classical music, symphonic music at the highest level, but is instead to bring people together for live musical experiences that can enrich and in some cases change people's lives. And we're going to be most successful in packing our concert venues and attracting audience members to the Inner Harbor on July 4th or Oregon Ridge, you know, a beautiful outdoor venue in Baltimore County during the summer if we maintain a commitment to artistic excellence quality, innovation, creativity. But we're failing in achieving our mission as a symphony orchestra if we're performing in front of an empty house or a house that is only filled, you know, 30%. And so we spend a lot of time 
not at the expense of artistic quality, but in service of artistic quality and any artistic goals that we have. Talking about the patron experience, talking about the breadth of programming, concert concepts that we need to be testing and introducing and supporting as a symphony orchestra. Because again, the ultimate goal, in my humble opinion, should be to attract the largest, most engaged, excited attendance or audience as possible. So what do you mean about concert experience? That's a very interesting phrase that jumped out there. I mean, you, you've got to put some flesh on those bones or dress it up a bit at least. I have always believed that one of our competitive advantages beyond the quality of our performances is the breadth of performances, concert types that especially a full-time orchestra can offer its community throughout the year. We perform, you know, over 150 concerts a year. And finding the right mix of classical, pops, family, indoor, outdoor, free, ticketed, um, film, um, specials, uh, new ideas such as our fusion concerts with Steve Hackman, who you know does a genius job of pairing Tchaikovsky's Pathetique Symphony with the music of Drake in a way that fully showcases you know the full orchestra and the talents within the orchestra, making sure that we are creating as many different avenues of participation as, as possible. And I truly believe that over the 150 or the 200 concerts that a full-time orchestra can offer, we can maintain our commitment to quality and attract that many more segments of a community. And yes, while it would be wonderful if someone attending a holiday concert or a film concert or a fusion concert eventually decides to attend a classical subscription concert, if that doesn't happen, we should still celebrate that we have a relationship with that audience member who is hopefully enriched by whatever they find of value from the Baltimore Symphony. I love that. I love that last bit in particular, Mark, because I think it's been a, a colossal mistake by our industry to think that let's put on something, let's just say generically, a Pops concert, and eventually those people will suddenly think, I love Beethoven, Mahler, Schumann, but all of that stuff. It doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And concomitantly, as it were, as a word I don't often use, I'll save it for this podcast, we should never be embarrassed about the art form in itself and the music we produce. And so if we can have different pedestals within the same organization, uh, I think we have nothing to lose and everything to gain by, by going down that route. Let me circle back to one thing that you said uh, that I, I, I wanna push back on. Um, while it doesn't always happen that someone attending a film concert will migrate over to a classical subscription concert it often does you think 
And I love how Jonathan Hayward, our incoming music director, speaks about the power of, of music, classical music or any genre, being able to speak to just about anybody if the conditions are right. So we won't be successful in bringing new audience members to anything we're doing here at the Meyerhoff, on the road, or at Strathmore, if we aren't focused on making this as welcoming, as respectful, uh, a set of places. So that's, that's a given. But symphony orchestras have not always exhibited behavior that leads every member of a community to feel welcome okay, and great that's, at that's... the symphony hall. So if the conditions are such that a newbie and someone who has attended for 40 years feel equally loved and embraced and welcomed into the hall, I think there is a high probability that someone coming for a film concert or a pops concert, a holiday concert, is going to eventually be interested in coming back and seeing a classical concert conducted by Jonathan. He is a wonderful ambassador, champion, for not only the Baltimore Symphony, but classical music. And I think that all of these things are going to come together. People will have perhaps discovered the Meyerhoff because they're attending next month a United Way reception that we're going to be hosting in the lobby of the Meyerhoff. But they're going to be surrounded by these mentions <laughs> um, uh, that, that this is also the home of the Baltimore Symphony. And maybe that will lead them to come back for a holiday concert next year. Well, in the ensuing months, they're going to be reading about Jonathan Hayward. They're going to be um, hearing about um, the, the expanded array of activity um, and his love of classical music and our collective desire to attract new audiences into our performance like never before. And these seeds will eventually, in many cases, lead to decisions to hear us somewhere in their backyard. We're going to be introducing a new college campus series beginning next season. We'll continue performing in non-traditional venues throughout the city and state, as I said earlier. And they will eventually decide that they want to experience this majestic sound that is created by, you know, 80 or 90 world-class musicians. So I'm never going to give up hope that they will eventually discover the full breadth of what we do, but I certainly won't begrudge them if for the next 20 or 30 years, they only come to the Meyerhoff or they only come to Strathmore two or three times for the particular product, <laughs> concert experience that most appeals to them. Okay, Mark, that's the longest degree of pushback I've ever had in my life. And I'm going to grant you some of it because you say it so eloquently. Uh, but I, maybe I'll, I'll, uh, I'll temper what I said by saying, I think results up until now have been disappointing in terms of Pops audiences feeding into what we call the mainstay classical programs. And I wish you well with it, because as I said, we have nothing to lose and everything to gain by it. And you have such a myriad of different approaches in mind there in, in the in the works for the future that um, 
if it doesn't work, it's not for the want of trying, inspiration or great ideas. So uh, I, I hope you prove to be an example for the for the whole industry in this, because we really need it. Um, I want to move on a little bit, if I may, and ask you, though, what is the least pleasurable aspect of this wonderful job you have? We're an expensive art form that requires you know, pretty immense investment on the part of our communities. And we're rightfully an expensive art form because we want to support, you know, the full-time livelihoods of, in our case, you know, 80 plus musicians. We want to hold on to them. We want to attract, you know, the world's best to, to Maryland. And audiences certainly expect to have, you know, popular conductors and guest artists and, you know, this full array of programs. So it all, you know, adds up in our case to a $30 million operating budget each year. There unfortunately aren't unlimited resources in Baltimore, in the state of Maryland. And so we have to make tough decisions almost on a daily or weekly basis. We have many, many more ideas in our heads than can be implemented because of a limited amount of, of resource. And so I am pained when meeting with our education and community engagement team and we have to go only halfway towards a, a, a goal that we have dreamt up. That's a painful process, but it's also an important realization because it only provides more motivation to all of us to work that much harder, that much smarter, to grow our audience base, because earned revenue has to remain an important part of the revenue mix and establish new and deeper relationships with donors of all sizes. But boy, if we didn't have to run up against um, a funding limitation, uh, it would be really, really interesting to see what any orchestra no matter where they exist in this country, could be doing in service of its community. And I suppose this applies to any business. I don't mean to suggest that we're alone in having to make tough decisions. But in response to your question, I wish that we didn't have to face that dilemma as often as, as, as we do, especially you know coming out of a pandemic. It's a fascinating field. It's a fascinating art form. It's a fascinating you know, set of professions, conductors, administrators, musicians. And um, I, I, I can't imagine doing anything else. And I, I um, feel lucky that I've now had the opportunity for the past 20 years to be a part of several symphony orchestras um, who have tried you know, during my 10 years to do the right thing in service of, of the community. Um, and I've had this opportunity to apply lessons learned in earlier jobs 
to what I'm doing now. And um, I, I hope that um, the powers that be here at the Baltimore Symphony um, include me in, in the future of the organization for the next 15 or 20 years. Because I do think that this is a unique opportunity in Baltimore, in Maryland, for all of the reasons that we've talked about to, um, yeah, accomplish that ultimate goal of having that many more um, community members feeling a strong connection to this art form, to our musicians, to our institution. Mark, it's been wonderful meeting you and very inspiring chatting with you. I think that's the, the most important thing about this podcast. I get inspiration from my guests. So um, thank you for that. I'm going to ask you a final question, which I, I ask everybody, if you don't mind. And what's in your life the one thing you're most proud of? Well, professionally, I am proud of any advances that secure the future of a symphony orchestra. Um, and then personally, I, I am you know, most proud, along with my wife, Christina, that we are raising three unbelievable sons who are going to contribute to our lives, their lives, and hopefully the world in some special ways. And I just can't wait to see what they produce for this world. And, you know, to connect the two, I, I, I guess I'm proud that both Christina and I have tried to set an example for our boys professionally and personally that will hopefully, you know, serve them well. They have seen how hard we have worked. They have seen how we have overcome challenges and how we have always wanted to be in service of not, you know, the pursuit of power or wealth, but pursuit of a greater sort of common good. And that's pretty special about the nonprofit world. And both of us have existed within the nonprofit sector. And I love the example that that has allowed us to give our, our boys. Mark Hansen, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Congrats to you um, on the success of this podcast. I've really enjoyed it and uh, look forward to many conversations and concerts in the years and decades to come. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick with a Point. <laughs>